This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on this sh- upcoming show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Well, what a week and what a w- night. Uh, the House passed a historic uh, legislation to uh, extend health care coverage to millions of uninsured, although it did not extend it to undocumented workers nor did it extend it to people seeking abortion uh, using federal funds. So we're going to take a look back at what is behind this rhetoric and this attempt to impose the Hyde Amendment that restricted federal funding of abortion um, on using federal funds. And what's behind all this? Why did the Hyde Amendment come uh, into play in the healthcare debate, and how does it really affect women who are seeking abortions, especially lower in low income women? And then we'll also be taking a look. Uh, given that this healthcare bill uh, that's rushing towards Obama's signature uh, does not include undocumented workers, what kind of reform, immigration reform? Uh, people asking for, and over the weekend, thousands um, marched in Washington on this very issue, asking Obama to make this a priority. And so we're going to be going to uh, hear a couple of programs that were uh, produced by the National Radio Project's Making Contact, and uh, we'll be uh, looking at... uh, what they have to say about these two issues, Hyde Amendment as well as immigration reform. And so these are two half-hour programs that are on the Making Contact, um, from the Making Contact program uh, from National Radio Project. And uh, the first is Hiding, H-Y-D-E-I-N-G, the right to choose. And so this is Subversity here with Dan Zhang. Uh, the opinions expressed on the show were not, are not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. This week on Making Contact. If we were all united in saying those with the least resources will be at the top of our agenda, that's who we're going to ensure rights for first. I think that, you know, a woman's right to choose is part of health care reform. Contraception um, is part of health care. Um, proper sex education um, should be available to those who actually want it. While lawmakers in Washington mull over the nuts and bolts of health care reform, advocates are concerned that a woman's fundamental right to reproductive health services is endangered. On this edition, Stupak, the Hyde Amendment, and Religion. We take a look at some of the threats to abortion access more than 35 years after Roe v. Wade legalized a woman's right to choose. I'm Tina Rubio, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, vital ideas, and important information. Health care coverage should be something we can rely on when we need it most, and that includes the option of having an abortion. Yet for more than 30 years, even in the face of Roe v. Wade, that hasn't been the case for many low-income women, women of color, and young women. 
Stephanie Poggi is the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds. She joins me now from Boston to discuss the Hyde Amendment and its impact on a woman's right to have an abortion. Stephanie, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about National Network of Abortion Funds? Basically, the National Network of Abortion Funds does two things. We work to help women all across the country and actually uh, internationally to pay for abortions if women do not have the money to do so. And we also work to change things for the long term. So we're working to change policies and lift barriers at the state and national level so that women, you know, one day, every single woman in this country will be able to decide for herself if she wants to have a child or not and will be able to make her own decision about the health of, of herself and her family and her future. Can you start by giving us some background about Hyde, and what kind of impact has it had these 30-plus years? Well, the Hyde Amendment was passed uh, just three years after Roe v. Wade made abortion legal across the United States. And the Hyde Amendment was the first... Uh, and it continues to this day to be the biggest, most devastating attack on abortion rights in the United States. Basically what it did was say that federal Medicaid funding will not cover an abortion. So if a woman needs any other kind of care and she's receiving Medicaid, she can get it. She can get prenatal care, she can be sterilized, she can, you know, in many states she can get birth control, but she cannot make her own decision about having an abortion. So it took that away from poor women. And many states, 33 followed suit and banned state Medicaid funding of abortion. So in practice, we only have about 15 states right now that provide state Medicaid funding for abortion. But what it really meant was that what's supposed to be a constitutional right under Roe v. Wade is only a right for those who have economic resources. So if you don't have the money to exercise your constitutional right, you don't have that right at all. What was abortion access like before the Hyde Amendment? Well, in the years between Roe v. Wade and the, and the Hyde Amendment's implementation, um, hundreds of thousands of low-income women were able to get abortions, you know, through, uh, through Medicaid coverage. You know, so you go from illegal abortion, which, you know, as you can imagine, you know, primarily affected the poor and women of color because women who had resources could either, you know, in 1970, they could start going to New York. You know, before that, they could leave the country. But many, you know, so the, the poorest women already felt, you know, more than anyone else, the brunt of, of illegal abortion. So once Roe v. Wade passes, it's really poor women and women of color who actually have the greatest benefit because they, you know, for the first time, really, um, can have their, their rights and their dignity secured. So in those first years, Medicaid actually paid for a third to a half of all abortions in the United States. I, I think there was a lot of hope initially with the onset of this new Congress that there'd be a real opportunity to expand access to family planning services and medically accurate sex education. I mean, for the first time ever, Congress is not only being led by a woman, but also a strong pro-choice Democrat, Nancy Pelosi, from California. But as we saw so deftly play out in both the House and Senate health care bills at the end of 2009, it appears the Hyde Amendment will be in full effect. Can you first tell us what the Stupak-Pitts Amendment was about, and then where are we now in regards to the proposed federal health care legislation? 
Well, the Stupak Pitts Amendment, which is which has passed the House, um, and as you know, there's also the Nelson Amendment, which is in the Senate. So there's two different severe abortion restrictions in the two versions of health care reform that we have right now. You know, and in a way, what they have in common is much more, you know, than, than what separates them. They're both really onerous, really draconian, enormous setbacks um, for, for women, you know, every single woman in this country. But of course, we'll take the biggest toll, at least initially, on women who might receive a subsidy from the federal government for their health care. So Stupak Pitts basically said, uh, you know, any health care insurance, any insurance program that wants to be able to offer their product to anyone who's getting a subsidy cannot offer abortion coverage. So basically, you know, which, which insurance companies are going to say, oh, we don't want to be eligible for all the millions of people that are that are going to get a subsidy. So pretty much that meant that abortion coverage would be eliminated from the new health care reform. And, you know, if health care works, reform works the way it's supposed to, all of us are supposed to end up in the exchange where it's more competitive, you know, ideally, and, and costs are lowered. So eventually, everyone who currently has insurance coverage could lose it. So, you know, clearly that's a terrible, terrible loss. And it's an expansion of the Hyde Amendment. Um, what we see on the Senate side, which people are saying is is a better compromise, is actually quite terrible as well, completely unacceptable. And what the Senate says is that states may ban insurance coverage of abortion. So what we're going to see is many, many states just banning abortion coverage altogether. You know, states that are already conservative, that already restrict abortion access, that already only have one clinic, that already have poor social services, will very likely just ban abortion coverage altogether. And then the other piece that they added was that people who want to have abortion coverage in their plans will need to, employers and women would need to write two checks. So every single month, you know, you're going to have the bad abortion check and then the rest of health care reform. So it's also, you know, I think um, very clearly on the part of the anti-abortion, anti-woman, anti-human rights forces, an effort to say abortion is not part of health care. You know, that's what they're trying to say. And, and they want to further stigmatize the procedure and further stigmatize women who, you know, who are trying to do the best they can in their lives and make their decisions and take care of their families. And where are we now in this struggle? Well, the, there's a version of a conference committee that's been set up that's trying to reconcile the two versions. And, you know, groups, pro-choice organizations are actively trying to make sure that neither one of these is implemented. You know, but I think what we see is a real deep, fundamental um, lack of understanding, I think, in Congress you know, including among those who are democratic and who are ostensibly pro-choice and on the part of the administration of what, what women's rights mean, about what access to abortion means, and what a constitutional right is. I don't think that many people know how much an abortion actually costs. Can you tell us? Yes, an abortion in the first trimester generally costs about $400. I mean, that can range from... 350 to 600, but I would say generally 400 to 450 would be would be the general range, and that's a lot of money to come up with next week, you know. And, and sometimes when I talk to different groups of people who've never found themselves in that situation, I say, picture what's the amount that if you had to come up with next week to safeguard your family and your life and your future, you know, what's that amount? And can you, you know, what would be the amount that would be just too much, you know, for some people? 
it would be $400. They can't imagine coming up with that. They certainly don't have it in their bank account. For some people, it might be $10,000 because they have that much money. But picture that amount and picture not being able to come up with that and, and what you would need to do. So that's in the first trimester. Once you get into the second trimester, the costs go up every single week. So most of the women who are having later abortions are in that situation precisely because they don't have that $400 in the first trimester. Why is it so vitally important to turn the tide on this particular piece of legislation? You know, we, we understand at the National Network of Abortion Funds because we work with women every single day who are facing you know, enormous barriers because of the Hyde Amendment. We understand what it will mean to have an expansion of those barriers, to have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands more likely women who are coming to us for support. You know, we know this is completely untenable. So we have been working, you know, for many years to try to raise awareness about what the Hyde Amendment means, what the impact is, and to build a strategy that can lift barriers at the state level and that can eventually lift these federal funding bans, which are discriminatory, which are unjust, which are, you know, issues of racial justice as well as economic justice and women's rights. Uh, you know, we've had a real setback in healthcare reform. You know, we've had a real setback. And what we need to do is come together again. We need to look at what the political environment is. Um, we need to really reaffirm that connection between a right and, and the ability to exercise it. We need to say that women of color and poor women and young women are going to be at the center of the fight, you know, if we were all united in saying those with the least resources will be at the top of our agenda, that's who we're going to ensure rights for first, those who have the least ability to, to exercise them right now, then we would be in a really different place. And I think we can get to that place, but it's going to take a lot of work, and it's going to take grassroots work, and it's going to take state-level work. And, you know, so we're going to bring everybody together. We're going to look at some short-term strategies, and we're going to look at movement building and, and the long-term long fight and all the allies that we need to bring together also from other movements to try to really understand what abortion does mean in women's lives and how, how much we stand to lose if we, don't, if we don't fight together. Stephanie, talk to me a little bit about your current campaign. So the 30 Years is Enough campaign, we started that campaign in 2006 um, at the 30-year anniversary of the Hyde Amendment. And we made a lot of progress over the last three years. We were able to you know, raise the awareness in Congress. We were able to get the, the pro-choice movement really talking about this issue, which they had not been doing for a long time, you know, except within groups like ours and except within women of color groups. So we really got many, many groups to say, yes, this needs to be part of what we're fighting for. Um, so, so, but now, you know, we're at a, we've done a lot of state level work, we've done some grassroots work, we've done some work with champions in Congress, and now it clearly has to be kicked up a huge level so that we can um, deal with the fallout from healthcare reform. You know, we don't know at this moment how much we're going to lose under healthcare reform in terms of women's access to abortion, but, you know, however that ends up, we're going to need to come together, we're going to need to look at that fallout, what it means for the states what it means nationally, and we're going to need to figure out who's going to take which piece of this and how we're going to move it forward. And what we're fighting for is for our whole movement to recommit to this as the number one priority. We've been talking to Stephanie Poggi. She's the executive director of the National Network of Abortion Funds. Stephanie, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you.
2008 Guttmacher Institute study shows one in three women in the U.S. will have an abortion in her lifetime. And national polling consistently shows the majority of Americans support a woman's right to choose. Yet it seems reality and public opinion are falling on deaf ears, with the recent legislative tide turning against legal abortion. Currently, half of the states across the U.S. are now enforcing parental consent or notification laws. Mandatory 24-hour waiting periods are now in effect in some states. And biased counseling laws force clinic staffers to promote childbearing to their patients. Each is designed to limit a woman's constitutionally protected right to have an abortion. We now hear from a young woman who shares her story about the decision she made to have an abortion and the impact it's had on her life. My name is Jenny. I'm 25 years old. When I was 21, I had an abortion. I was a senior at the time. It was May, so it was towards the end of the semester. It was right before finals when I realized that I was pregnant. I knew pretty much right away that I wanted to have an abortion. I had talked about it before with my boyfriend. Neither of us were ready, and we both knew that. So I was lucky enough to have the support of my parents. I was able to call and talk about it with them. Neither of them were comfortable with it exactly. It wasn't, you know, a call that I really looked forward to making or that I ever thought I would have to make to call my parents and tell them that I was pregnant and having an abortion. It wasn't something either of them wanted for me, but it wasn't something that either of them thought should be their decision. They knew that it was my decision to make and they were going to support whatever decision felt right for me. So I had the abortion covered by my insurance. I had insurance through my mom. And in Ohio, there's a 24-hour wait period. So in order to have an abortion, you need to first talk about abortion with the counselor, see if it's the right option for you, even though you've already decided it is. And then 24 hours later, return to actually have the abortion. For the abortion itself, I had two of my best friends come with me, and they were there in the waiting room the whole time, and they were able to drive me home and be there for me. Uh, about a year and a half later, I got a letter from the insurance company telling me that they were denying the claim, that they had decided that it wasn't an urgent procedure, and therefore I should have had it in California, which was where my insurance was based, that the insurance that I had in Ohio only counted for emergency or urgent care, and they didn't deem the abortion to be urgent. You know, there's multiple bits of research and studies that show that the longer that a woman waits, the more medical complications there are in having an abortion, besides which after I made the decision to have the abortion, having to carry it much longer than that just kind of feels like torture. It's urgent when you make the decision. It becomes an urgent one, medically, emotionally. So the idea that I should have gotten on a plane and gone home to have the procedure was just obscene to me. And I was able to write a letter back to my insurance company, several letters, and eventually they deemed that the procedure was, in fact, considered urgent. That actually just happened a couple months ago. In 2009, three years after the um, abortion itself, 
I was still fighting with the insurance company to have them pay for it. But they did pay for it. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm grateful for that. I'm still with my boyfriend. We've been together now almost six years. And we will have children together someday, I imagine. I plan on it. I want to have kids with him. But I'm still not ready. <laughs> like, is it three, three years later? I'm still not there. And I'm really grateful that I have that time to keep working on our relationship and to keep doing things that I want to do for myself before I take on the role of being a mother. I'm getting a great education and I'm going to end up being a nurse in a couple years. And I'm, I feel really lucky that I was able to make that decision. It doesn't define who I am. Like, I'm, I don't define myself by someone who had an abortion. One in three women in America has an abortion, and I'm just one of many. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. Women face a myriad of barriers when it comes to getting an abortion. Fewer clinics offering abortion services, a lack of trained abortion providers, and Medicaid restrictions, to name a few. And what about religion? No doubt, the Catholic Church has a powerful lobby, and it plays a huge role in influencing public policy and its followers. Many say that Vatican policies affect everyone, Catholic or not, by limiting the availability of reproductive health services around the world. The fact is, Catholic policy bans both contraception and abortion, even in cases of rape and incest. But Catholics for Choice, founded the same year Roe v. Wade was passed, serves as a voice for Catholics who believe that Catholic tradition supports a woman's legal and moral right to make decisions about her own reproductive health and sexuality. John O'Brien is the president of Catholics for Choice. He joins us now on the phone from Washington, D.C. John, thank you for speaking with us. Thank you. Catholics for Choice believes that it's women and their families who pay the price every time theocracy trumps democracy in the debate over women's health care. What do you say to those Catholics who are unyieldingly opposed to women's reproductive freedoms? Well, I think one of the most important things to concentrate on is that it's interesting um, from Poland to Portugal, the Philippines, or Pittsburgh in the United States. Whenever Catholics are polled and whenever they're asked uh, what they believe about sexual and reproductive health, an overwhelming majority of Catholics have a very liberal view when it comes to the use of contraception to prevent unplanned pregnancy in the first instance, or indeed when it's necessary for a woman to have an abortion. And what we've seen the world over, we've seen Catholics, really the majority of Catholics, disagree with what the hierarchy has to say on these issues. Do you think Catholics' opinions would change if the papacy changed its own position regarding abortion rights and reproductive choice? I think that what's important is that when a legislator hears from um, a bishop, I think it, just as you know, a legislator hears from people who are um, representatives of labor unions or employers' um, representative groups, 
The first question a legislator has to ask is, is what they're saying factually correct? And the second is, who are they representing? And I think that the same criteria that's applied to whether it be an environmental lobby group um, or a trade lobby group, the same criteria is not applied to religious leaders. Religious leaders are getting a pass on this. And in reality, very often, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops is not representing factually um, situations concerning sexual and reproductive health. And they certainly don't speak for um, constituents um, across the United States who are voters. So I think it's important that um, legislators really pay attention to how Catholics think and feel and how that affects the majority of people in the country. Because we shouldn't um, create legislation uh, around the dictates of one particular religious view. Um, America is a country of many religions, and there's many people who have no religion. And we really need to create legislation for all of the people, not just um, because the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops have a strong lobby on Capitol Hill. And as a lot of us know, many low-income women rely solely on government-run programs for access to reproductive health care services. What impact do you think the Catholic's hierarchy's ban on contraception and abortion has had on women's lives, especially on the lives of low-income women? You know, people who have financial means will always be able to circumvent any prohibition. Um, but those who are poor are the ones who suffer. When you have to rely on the local hospital to secure um, your sexual and reproductive health services, if that local hospital is a Catholic-controlled hospital, they may receive taxpayer money um, to run the hospital, but um, very often um, they have some type of restrictions on what type of services they have available, and therefore people have to travel sometimes many miles, which is uh, sometimes a, a, a total impossibility for those who are poor to travel those miles and that distance um, in order to be able to access sexual and reproductive health services. So it, it's absolutely critical um, that those services be made available or, be, or that women be accommodated, especially poorer women. So what role did Catholics for Choice play in the recent federal health care debates? Um, we have been very active um, in both supporting the idea, because as a social justice um, organization, as an organization that's concerned about poorer people, um, we are in favor of health care reform. Um, it looks like we're going to end up with just um, health insurance reform. Um, but even so, we believe that um, it can have a tremendously positive impact for the poorer folks um, in the United States of America. The sad um, part of it is that um, those who are anti-choice and those who, quite frankly, are against health care reform injected into this debate um, a concern, um, a, a false concern, a red herring, if you like, um, that um, federal funds, that taxpayer funds, would be used to fund abortions. We in the pro-choice community always knew that the health care debate was not going to result in an advance for abortion rights um, and services, which obviously we are committed to and would like to see. But what we've actually seen instead is that because of a weak Democratic Party, a Democratic Party that has many um, people elected in the last election cycle who are not in favor of the party's platform that supports a woman's right to choose. We've seen Democrats um, vote in favor of a Stupak Pitts Amendment in the House and the Nelson Amendment in the Senate. And these go beyond um, the idea of the Hyde Amendment um, in banning federal funds. They would actually not allow even people within um, insurance, um, private insurance arrangements um, to be able to access abortion um, easily. 
Um, and I think that that's a huge problem. It's the equivalent of, it's like passing an Americans with Disability Act and actually saying that it doesn't apply to partially sighted people. The idea that we could have health care or health insurance reform and discriminate against women's choices um, really beggars belief that it is truly health reform and it certainly discriminates against women. It certainly will make um, it harder if if they are successful in women um, being able to get abortion in certain circumstances. So how effective do you think the anti-choice lobby which includes, you know, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops or Catholics United and Catholics and Alliance for the Common Good has been in subordinating women's access to reproductive health services. I think that the um, those who are opposed to um, uh, sexual and reproductive health have been extraordinarily successful um, in the last number of years. Um, I think that part of the reason um, why the anti-choice lobby has been so successful is that after the election of John Kerry, I think that the Democratic Party experienced a major crisis of confidence. Um, Some strategists in the party believed that the reason why John Kerry lost was because of contentious um, issues, one of the issues being a woman's right to choose. there's, the polling um, and the polling analysis um, didn't show that um, the reason why folks didn't vote for, for John Kerry was because of these issues. The polling analysis actually showed that John Kerry, in spite of the fact that many folks liked him, was not a candidate that resonated with the voters. It was as simple as that. But there was a certain cadre of um, strategists within the Democratic Party who decided that what they were going to do was that they were going to reach out to values-based voters. Um, And I think what that actually meant, there's nothing wrong with reaching out to values-based voters and indeed religious voters, Um, but uh, some would argue that the polling would suggest that religious voters and and, and people of faith were always with the Democratic Party. Maybe not the um, loud fundamentalist preachers that you see on TV, but certainly people of faith across the United States had had voted for um, the Democratic Party in a similar way that other people of faith have voted for the Republican Party. They didn't have a particular problem. What they did do, though, is they fielded, they, they fielded a, a number of more conservative Democratic candidates, um, some of whom do not support a woman's right to choose. And as a result of that, um, those candidates were elected, those candidates are in the House and in the Senate. And to some extent, um, what we've seen in recent times is those candidates um, driving what the position of the Democratic Party is on some of these um, issues around sexual and reproductive health. What is your vision for the future, then, regarding reproductive rights and access to abortion for all women? Now is the time um, that we really need to, um, in the pro-choice movement, um, we need to come together and have a visionary approach um, towards the future. The reality is that um, before Roe v. Wade, women in the United States died um, as a result of not being able to access um, a woman's right to choose. You know, they can pass all the laws that they like um, against abortion and restricting abortion, but women still need a right to choose. John O'Brien, President for Catholics for Choice, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Well, thank you very much. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. To hear full interviews with National Network of Abortion Funds, Stephanie Poggi, Catholics for Choice, John O'Brien, and a bonus interview with Guadalupe Rodriguez of Access, Women's Health Rights Coalition, log on to our website at radioproject.org. This program is funded in part by the Mary Wolford Foundation. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.
So that was our dispatch from Making Contact, a national radio project uh, uh, program, on the background of the abortion restrictions uh, that restrict access for especially low-income women to uh, health care in this current bill that passed the Congress, uh, passed the House yesterday, last night. Uh, even though Stupiak, uh, Stupak, Bart Stupak was considered uh, anti-abortionist and author of the Stupak Amendment that uh, put in these uh, restrictions in the bill, uh, followed by uh, a promise from Obama to write uh, an executive order saying the same thing, uh, about the same thing, uh, he was called a baby killer last night by other anti-abortionists as the vote uh, was being taken, and or as the um, debate was continuing on a, uh, um, uh, a vote to actually uh, pass his amendment. So he voted against his own amendment uh, to put uh, even more restrictions in, I suppose. Uh, so this now goes to the Senate, where the uh, details are going to be worked out, but Obama is expected to sign this health uh, insurance bill, basically, as one of the speakers said in this Making Contact program. Next, we're going to look at um, here um, what the the people on the ground say about immigration reform uh, in the wake uh, of the big protests over the weekend on immigration reform. But this was an earlier program from National Radio Project that uh, addressed this issue, immigration reform, how a broken system breaks the communities, breaks communities. Uh, also a program from National Radio Project. This week on Making Contact. Is this the American dream? That instead of applauding people who want to simply work hard, that we put them in jail? This puts a real face on the who is your neighbor kind of question because these are real people and real families and good people. If there's one thing to be said about the U.S. immigration system, it's that there's universal support for change. Congress is planning reforms in 2010, but in the meantime, state and federal immigration laws remain confusing and are sporadically enforced. On this edition, we go to two communities sorting through the aftermath of Bush-era federal immigration raids, and to Los Angeles where American Apparel became the first test case of the Obama administration's new approach to workplace hiring violations. I'm Tina Rubio, and this is Making Contact, a program connecting people, battle ideas, and important information. From the Minutemen militia to an electrified border fence, to amnesty and legalization for all. There's a lot of ideas about how to address the so-called immigration problem. Part of President Bush's approach was to carry out federal raids on workplaces with undocumented immigrants, targeting the workers themselves, not those who hired them. But rather than solving the problem, those raids, for the most part, only made things worse. Making Contact producer Andrew Stelser visited two communities where the largest raids happened in 2008. He found that when immigrants were swept up in raids, communities were dismantled. It's November of 2008. Barack Obama was elected only a couple of weeks ago. 
In the small town of Laurel, Mississippi, sits a grocery store called Las Americas. The owner is Panamanian, and most of the customers are Mexican and Guatemalan. Those communities have been growing steadily here over the past decade. But for the past three months, this normally bustling store has been virtually empty. That's Andrea, the store manager. She's walking through the aisles and pointing out the recent signs of change, although lack of change might be a better description. With hundreds of customers suddenly gone, her stock isn't moving. Uh, here is where we kept frozen tortillas. This case would stay full for most of the week. Now there's nothing in there. And you see all these sodas? I've had them for 15 to 20 days. It's totally stopped. Lots of people used to send money home to their families, but not anymore. Les piñatas, too. There used to be a lot of parties, children's birthdays, baptisms, and I would sell piñatas, but no more. On August 25, 2008, just a few months before Andrea was walking through this store, federal immigration agents swooped in on an electrical transformer factory in Laurel owned by Howard Industries. Almost 600 employees were arrested for working illegally. Almost overnight, the raid devastated the growing Latino population in Laurel. You can feel the emptiness in the streets and in the parks. Houses sit abandoned, with everything inside. Prostitutes and rats have set up in the houses. It makes me very sad. Most of the other Latinos left town, or have stayed put, but are without any income. Angelica Olmedo is one of them. She was a worker at Howard. She's one of about a hundred that were released from federal detention for humanitarian reasons. In her case, to take care of her 12-year-old son. But Angelica, along with the hundred other released detainees, can't work now and is depending largely on charity to survive. People are losing faith. Because if you don't pay the rent here, they kick you out. If you don't pay the lights, they turn it off. If you don't pay the water, they turn it off. And there are people in their houses already without electricity. It's very, very difficult. Nine workers were charged with identity theft, and the other 500 or so with non-criminal immigration violations. But only one Howard Industry Company official was charged with any crimes. In December 2009, the company's former human resources manager pled guilty to one conspiracy count of knowingly hiring illegal immigrants. In other words, the employer took almost none of the blame, and a growing community was destroyed. But if what happened in Laurel, Mississippi was tragic, the ice raid on Postville, Iowa, a few months earlier, in May of 2008, was a full-on catastrophe. That raid didn't just tear apart the Latino community, but the entire town. Postville is a tiny town of less than 3,000 people, in the middle of the cornfields in northeast Iowa. Inside Club 51, the only bar on the main drag, a group of retired farmers play cards and sip Bud Lights. One reluctantly gives his take on what's known simply as the raid. They put the raid on and, and broke the town and broke everybody. 
The federal immigration raid in May of 2008 was at Agriprocessors, the largest kosher meat processing plant in the world. They just come with helicopters and they loaded 400 people up and hauled them away. The wives were here and little kids were here and little kids are here yet today. They can't work and they can't, can't do nothing. At the time, a few months before the raid in Mississippi, the Postville, Iowa raid was the largest in U.S. history. Almost 400 undocumented workers were arrested. And with many other residents scared, the population of the town decreased about 40%. With that exodus of people, the town's economy collapsed. If you can make it through this, then you could probably make it through everything, anything. That's the feeling on the street now. Meyer, who didn't want to give his last name, owns a kosher grocery store in downtown Postville, which mainly caters to the Orthodox Jewish community here. Because of the kosher meatpacking plant, there were about 100 Jewish families here, one of the largest Orthodox communities in the Midwest. But since the raid, more than half of them have left. You know, just on the block that we're on, there's uh, one, two, three, four, six storefronts that are empty that just, you know, six, seven months ago were, were full. Meyer has given many of his customers food on credit. Not only is it his only chance for his store to survive, but he can't really deny his own neighbors food to eat, especially when the nearest kosher grocery is at least three hours' drive away in Minneapolis. His is far from the only business suffering. There are lots of those little things. You know, the hardware store that's owned money because the landlords aren't having enough people to rent their apartments, to pay the rents, so that the landlord can turn around and pay the hardware store for the goods that they bought in order to maintain their buildings. Mark Gray is a professor of anthropology at the University of Iowa and has been studying the town of Postville for more than a decade. There are the cattlemen who no longer have a place to sell their cattle and the feed dealerships who no longer sell the feed to the guys who can't grow cattle anymore because there's nobody around here to buy them. So there are all these ripple effects. That ripple effect didn't stop at the Postville city limits. Neighboring towns and counties all felt an economic implosion. Postville's mayor unsuccessfully tried to have the state declare the town an economic and human disaster area. Gray said it was a real-world test of his academic beliefs. You know, a lot of us have argued for years that big workplace raids were not the answer. That's not immigration reform. We certainly understand and respect that the immigration authorities had a job to do. They did their job. But there was no thought given whatsoever to the implications for the community itself when you arrest 20% of the town's population. Then came another test of the immigration debate rhetoric. Immigrants' rights advocates have long argued that we need the undocumented to do the low-paying jobs no one else wants. In Postville, the disappearance of almost half the population meant a sudden shortage of available labor. When the agriprocessors' meatpacking plant wanted to quickly get back up to speed, that hypothetical assumption about who would take those jobs was put to the test. The emphasis came to uh, hiring a legal workforce made up of people who are legally eligible to work in the United States, and the plan hired staffing agencies, many of whom were simply going to homeless shelters and picking up people in halfway houses and so forth, a lot of down-in-their-luck types, a lot of convicted felons, a lot of drug addicts, frankly, a lot of people with problems who were brought into this little town, and it didn't work. <laughs> Crime rates went through the roof. 
Scott, who didn't want to give his last name, came all the way from Buffalo, New York, to work at Agriprocessors. He says promises made to him and fellow co-workers were not kept. The way they put it sounded very good. When we got out here, it was nothing like that. They were promised higher pay, six days a week, overtime. But some people just didn't, they didn't hire, they didn't take everybody that came with us. So they ended up going back to nothing, where, where they came from. The poor treatment of employees is a hallmark of industries where undocumented workers often end up, and agriprocessors was no exception. The company's former owner, an executive, and several employees are awaiting trial on child labor charges brought by the state of Iowa. However, all charges related to hiring and employing undocumented workers have been dropped. These two former agriprocessors workers, who didn't want to give their names, say the conditions on the meatpacking plant floor were unsanitary and dangerous. Many times they told me that I couldn't take a break until the assembly line finished. I urinated in my pants many times because they didn't give me permission to go to the bathroom. She had her finger cut by a knife. They never gave her a rest or medical care. They never stopped to clean the machine. They just kept working this way. Michelle Devlin is a professor of public health at the University of Iowa. Along with Professor Mark Gray, she co-authored a 2009 book called Postville, Surviving Diversity in Small-Town America. Devlin says employers are largely to blame for the lack of qualified labor, which brings on the need for immigrant workers. There was a time several decades ago when these kinds of larger companies and packing plants and other large employers paid living wages, fair wages, decent wages, and people at work there were local people, were Americans, and they could support entire families on the salary of one person. That picture changed economically uh, over the past few decades, and what we see now are a lot of these companies that open up, they don't pay union wages, and because the economy got very depressed in this part of the United States and Midwest and some of our other areas, a lot of the population left the state and went to places like California and New York and other areas where there were jobs. And so now a lot of states in rural America literally do not have enough people to work in them. So if these companies are going to actually have employees, they either have to raise those salaries up, way up, to reattract other people to come back in and to actually work here, or they're going to have to rely once again on immigrants and refugees and other kinds of people to do the work. And the question is, will these people be here legally or not legally? And that's going to remain the big question. Where are the workers going to come from? Frankly, I'm not sure they figure that out yet in Postville or in other towns that look like Postville around the U.S. These are the discussions now taking place in Postville, where residents can no longer argue abstractly about immigration policy. One thing seems unanimous, according to Marin Olson. She's coordinator of the Postville Response Coalition, a group offering assistance to local residents. I think the one thing everyone can agree on is this should not happen to any other town. This should never happen again. Olson says in such a small community... Even people who thought of the different ethnicities as us and them suddenly realized how closely they were all tied together. 
we had white kids who asked their parents um, because their friends' parents had been taken away. Children would come home and say, when are they coming to take you? It profoundly shook this community to say, my neighbor's gone. My child's friend's parents are gone. What does that do to a sense of safety, to a sense of security? This is small town Iowa. And it pulled the rug out. Meyer, the kosher grocery store owner, says it will take years to rebuild the community. Customer mind summed it up very well that uh, she said a lot of good people got hurt for not a very good reason. Um, you know, the government came in here and uh, what did they accomplish? They may have made, made a few arrests. They may have uh, deported a few people. Does anybody feel safer now? No. Does anybody feel more financially secure? No. Does anybody feel more, you know, nothing. There's, there's nothing, I don't think anybody, even those that are diehard, you know, uh, against the, the illegal immigration problem can point to one positive thing that came out of this uh, postful experiment. By many accounts, undocumented workers have been leaving the U.S. over the past few years, which some people credit to a series of raids, like those in Iowa and Mississippi. But with the economic downturn, especially in immigrant-heavy industries like construction, it's hard to tell if those departures have more to do with tough immigration policies or simply a lack of available jobs. Eber Eleria, a Mexican immigrant who was arrested in the raid in Laurel, says tougher laws won't drive him away. There's no opportunity for me to better myself in my country, people hungry and starving. That's why I left it in the first place. So if there's an opportunity for me to struggle and fight and stay here, and if there's a small speck of a chance of me being able to stay, then I will stay here and wait for that moment. Barack Obama promised during his presidential campaign to move away from workplace raids. And 2010 is being promised as a year when immigration reform will be taking place in Congress. Bill Chandler, the executive director of the Mississippi Immigrants' Rights Alliance, says that unlike 2007, when Congress unsuccessfully tried to revamp the system, this time, local organizers and immigrant communities themselves have to be part of the legislative process. The grassroots groups were left out of that discussion. And what we're trying to do is make sure that doesn't happen again, that the experiences that we have in the hundreds of other groups around the country are included in that discussion and that the design of the bill is based on real-life experience. For Making Contact, I'm Andrew Stelzer. We'll be right back. You're listening to Making Contact, a production of the National Radio Project. If you'd like more information or for CD copies of this program, please call 800-529-5736. To find out how to support us, download shows, or get our podcasts, go to radioproject.org. In September 2009, we began to see what President Obama's immigration policy would look like. It played out in Los Angeles after American Apparel, a U.S.-based clothing company, laid off more than 1,600 workers. Instead of facing huge fines for employing undocumented workers, American Apparel fired its immigrant workforce. On the surface, this might seem like a more humane approach. In a collaboration with Spot Us, Patrick Burke reports from L.A., where, for the community at large, the result may not be that much different from the Bush-era raids. 
Outside a small house eight miles southeast of downtown L.A., Noami Perez plunges an empty bucket into a barrel of water. Two girls and a boy, all less than five years old, play inside. Noami brings the bucket in to flush the toilet and then gets more water for the dishes. The water inside the house has been shut off for two months because her family has been unable to pay the bill. For now, our neighbor in the front is giving us buckets of water. Noami sewed collars onto American Apparel shirts for almost seven years until she lost her job in late September. Since then, her job search has led to a series of rejections. She briefly tried working at another L.A. garment factory, but it only paid her 16 cents per piece. That is when she was actually paid for her work. Meanwhile, her landlord's deadline for eviction has already passed. And the situation is that none of the five adults who live here have been able to find work, except for my brother, who still works for American Apparel, and we don't have the money to pay the rent. How much is rent? Eleven hundred. The landlord said that we should tell him by today whether or not we have the rent, otherwise he would like us to vacate by Saturday. So what are you going to do? We would have to leave. Do you have any place to go? No. Maricela, Noami's sister, worked at American Apparel for just short of five years. She has a worst-case scenario worked out with her husband. Well, the thing is, I think about my daughters. And like my husband says, if they make us leave, even if we're sleeping in our car, we're still together. American Apparel's main factory is a complex of giant warehouse buildings in downtown L.A. A mostly Latino workforce brings finished clothes from first-floor racks to the trucks lined up along the perimeter. The workers I spoke to made up to $12 an hour after earning raises and could trade some of their wages for health insurance. Over the years, American Apparel's CEO, Dove Charney, has been a vocal supporter of undocumented immigrants. The company funds an advocacy campaign called Legalize LA, spreading pro-amnesty messages through billboards, t-shirts, and newspaper ads. But the production team on the floor today is only about three-quarters of what it was before September 2009, when Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, forced the resignation or termination of about 1,600 undocumented workers. Roberto Suro is a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism at USC. You know, there's an interesting symbolism in the fact that this was aimed at a company that was very visibly part of the immigration debate and very visibly positioned itself in favor of immigration reform. Uh, I certainly don't know what, how the decision was made to pick this firm as the target either of the initial investigation or then to be kind of the, the poster child for the new Obama policy. Uh, but it certainly made it a very visible enforcement action. And not the only one. In October, about 1,200 undocumented workers were fired after a government audit of a Minnesota cleaning company. The following month, ICE officials announced that 1,000 companies with some connection to public safety would be investigated for hiring undocumented workers. That brought the number of audits since the start of fiscal year 2009 to over 2,400, more than four times as many as the previous fiscal year. 
The American Apparel Audit began in late 2007. ICE investigators looked at documents that new hires had provided when filling out their I-9 paperwork. Under the Bush administration, ICE often followed up on these audits with worksite raids that split up families through detentions and deportations. But in this case, the investigation wasn't done until summer 2009, making it part of President Obama's inheritance. Obama has opted to move away from raids and instead to make employers fire workers that can't disprove the investigators' conclusions. ICE exerts this pressure with the threat of huge fines and criminal charges against employers in some cases. L.A.-based attorney Peter Shea is representing American Apparel on the matter. Shea sees Obama's intensification of I-9 audits as an unnecessary political maneuver, part of the Democrats' plan to pass an immigration overhaul in 2010. There are some in the Obama administration who believe that in order to lay the groundwork for comprehensive immigration reform in the future, including a generous legalization program in the future, that for the present the Obama administration has to show the anti-immigrant crowd that they're strong on enforcement. Shea is also executive director of the Center for Human Rights and Constitutional Law, a nonprofit that focuses on immigrants' rights. He's filed a class action suit to prevent the government's return to the Bush-era raid tactic. Shea would like the Obama White House to make administrative changes, like directing ICE investigators to work more closely with the Department of Labor so that criminal employers become the primary targets of enforcement actions. The vast majority of these terminated workers will be driven into the welcoming arms of the sweatshop owners. They'll move from jobs where the average wage was probably $12 an hour to jobs in which the average wage will probably be six or seven dollars an hour. They'll move from jobs where, where health and safety laws and labor laws were scrupulously followed to jobs where they're routinely ignored. No one even cares about them. The downtown UCLA Labor Center has been trying to help the laid-off American apparel workers. Organizers like Natalia Garcia have been giving them information on food banks, free clinics, and potential employers that might not require documentation. We met with the Mexican consul along with the Salvadorian and Guatemalan consul to see what services they could offer, which the option is that the Mexican consul will pay for your flight to go back to Mexico if you choose to do that. Other than that, if there's a medical emergency, they may be able to pay up to $600 for you. $600 may not pay for much medically, but it could make a difference for terminated workers like Sergio, who spent four years at American Apparel in housekeeping and security. I can't make the payments on my home in Mexico. Um, I can't do it. The payments to my house, um, I'm not sending money to my mother. And, well... I have thyroid cancer, and I had decided to have a healthy organic diet, but it's impossible to have that now because I have to live with um, the cheapest thing, whatever is on sale. And when one is faced with news like you're not going to be employed or you're not going to have an income, it affects your immune system and the illness advances. Sergio and some of the other former employees I talked to admitted having gotten documents less than a block from the labor center where we spoke in L.A.'s most famous marketplace for fake papers, MacArthur Park. Um, my friend needs a work permit and a social security. One social security? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. It's 40 bucks. 40 bucks. How long does it take to get it? Uh, one hour. One hour? Okay. I need your name and uh, 
and number the social security. Wouldn't you be providing the number? I need, I need um, the number, the the name, and the number. Oh, oh so I, I provide the number to sort of make it up. It's that easy to get a false social security card, which is one reason why, according to USC professor Roberto Suro, the government's long-term plan relies on expanding electronic verification, an effort launched under President Clinton, accelerated under George W. Bush, and embraced by Obama. The so-called e-verify system where an employer can do a computer check to see whether uh, an individual is authorized to work. It's one piece of what's expected to be uh, a larger solution. According to Sudo, the government's strategy is to strengthen E-Verify as soon as possible so as to create space for legalization as part of a comprehensive reform bill. So that was a dispatch from Making Contact on Immigration uh, Reform. And earlier we uh, heard ab about the Hyde Amendment and the Stupak Amendment. The Stupak Amendment, actually, to clarify, was actually not voted on even by, uh, was rejected by the uh, U.S. Uh, House of Representatives last night, even by Stupak himself, who was called a baby killer, uh, despite him being a, a anti-abortionist. So that's the irony. And also over the weekend, the House of Representatives uh, and uh, other legislators were also called uh, the F-word and the N-word uh, as they were... Um, going into Congress, I believe, um, or they were at some rallies, and uh, the anti, uh, the right wing actually started using names. So this is where we've deteriorated. The Civil Rights Bill, technically, the, some people are calling this legislation the Civil Rights Act of 2010, but look at the rhetoric. This is Dan Sung signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The opinions expressed on the show were not necessarily those of the regions of the University of California nor the management of KUCI. <laughs>